Hey, welcome to Breitbart News Daily, the little best of version that we do. I shouldn't say little, but it's shorter, the shorter best of version of our full show, which is on Sirius XM Patriot. So we did a lot today. We talked to Emma Jo Morris, the Breitbart politics editor, about uh, all the Trump stuff and Vivek and uh, just politics in general. Took a bunch of phone calls, really, really good phone calls about Trump. The question was, what could Trump say or do? that would cause his support to drop from whatever it is, 60% to 30%, that would give anyone else an opportunity to, to be in the lead. What could Trump say or do? I don't think anything. And then the flip side is what could any of the other candidates do or say to break out of the single digits and somehow catapult Trump into the 60%? I, I don't know what that looks like either. I, don't, I just don't see it. So we opened up the phones on that, had some great calls. But before we get to that, uh, we kicked off the show talking about the indictment. It broke in the middle of the night last night. They released the indictment, so we went over a couple of things uh, regarding that. And then we talked about Vivek and what makes Vivek unique about all the other Republican candidates who are running against Trump. And this one thing is clearly the reason why he's the only one rising in the polls. Here it is. County court posted on their website this indictment against Trump, then quickly deleted it. And then people were like, hey, was that the indictment against Trump? And they're like, nope, that was a fraudulent document. And then a couple hours later, they were just repos- <laughs> reposing. How does that happen? Who, <laughs> who pressed the button? Who pressed the send button or post button a little early? So I've always said that this is the weakest of the indictments. And uh, it is. Because we have the phone call. You can listen to the phone call. If you want, you can spend an hour listening to the phone call. It's right there on YouTube. I didn't know it was on YouTube until a couple weeks ago. And I, I was Googling a part of it, and then the whole thing popped up. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, it's, right, it's all right here. And remember the Ukrainian phone call, the, oh, the terrible, awful Ukrainian phone call. And then Trump the next day is like, oh, here's the transcript. And we were all like, oh, well, here, here it is. This is even better. This, you get the actual phone call. And even on the front of Drudge, the front of Drudge, headline of Drudge, quote, find 11,780 votes. I think we're all smart enough now. We're all with it enough now that whenever you hear an article or headline, quote, a word, that's not good enough. That means that whatever they're writing, they're putting extra words in front and behind to make that word seem worse. Trump didn't say, find 11,780 votes, like it was a command. The quote is, I just need to find 11,780 votes. It wasn't, you go find them. And it's certainly, and this is how they're acting, it wasn't, you go make them. That's not what it was. It wasn't, you, hey Brad, you... You, let's, you need to go fraud, and if you don't, oh, they'll be hacked to pay. You need to fraudulently go. Right now, Brad, head of the elections, you need to fraudulently create 11,780 votes so that we can overturn the actual election results that were in favor of Joe Biden and so that I can become dictator for life. You need to do it, Brad. Otherwise, I am going to destroy your family. If it was something like that, it would be a very different story. 
Instead, it was Brad, Brad, Brad. Listen, 20,000 dead people voted. Uh, 50,000 people with a P.O. box voted. Uh, 20, right, he just lists off all these things. It's like, all you got to do, all I got to do, all I, gotta, I just got to find 11,780 so we get the actual election results. I mean, here's like a million. Here's like a million election results, election, uh, votes that should be, that are fraudulently cast. I just got to find 11,780. We don't have to investigate every single one of them. Be great if you did. But all you got to do is find these. That's, that's the call. That's the, how is it possibly a crime? Of course. Let me quote just the first. We're not going to go through the whole thing because it's absurd. But let me just quote. Uh, I got two parts here. Introduction. It's the very beginning. Oh, I got to come out hot with this, right? You know what I mean? This, you're not going to save it. Save the juicy part for the end. You got to come out with it. Defendant Donald John, John Trump lost the United States presidential election. One of the states he lost was Georgia. Trump and the other defendants charged in this indictment refused to accept that Trump lost. This is in the state where Stacey Abrams still refuses to accept it. And they willingly, no, excuse me, knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. That conspiracy contained a common plan and purpose to commit two or more acts of racketeering. That's, that's the intro. That's the whole paragraph. Then it's a new page, and they go through the specific acts. You ready for one of the acts? This is great. Uh, by the way, they charge 18 other people. I think it's 18 other people with, with making false statements. That's the, that's the word they use in the indictment all the time. Came out last night, by the way, middle of the night. These, uh, these people made false statements. Is that a crime? Is that a crime to make false statements? Oh, I got here a quick, quick sidebar here. Um, where did I get this? Here it is. Uh, Biden, at a fundraiser, expressed regret over the name of the Inflation Reduction Act. Quote, I wish I hadn't called it that because it has less to do with reducing inflation than it does with dealing with providing for alternatives that generate economic growth. So Biden just admitted he regrets. He admitted he uh, made a false statement, called it the Inflation Reduction Act, but it didn't infl- it reduce inflation, and they knew it didn't. Is that a crime? Is, any, is anyone calling for Joe Biden to go to jail for making false statements? Then the indictment goes into the false electors. We had Joel Pollack on yesterday. Joel is all over this on Breitbart. Go to Breitbart.com and Joel wrote like 15 articles yesterday all about this. And he was on the show yesterday for a half an hour. Got a lot of great emails. People just like super nice. I mean, nice emails. They're like, wow, that was such a good segment. He explained it so clearly and eloquently. Trump team, he didn't make false electors. When they talk about false electors, it creates this perception that Trump and his team uh, like created, like, like uh, had these electors put on some Groucho Marx glasses and, uh, and try to deceive the uh, vice president by pretending to be the real electors. No, we are the real electors. Those are the fake ones. And the, and the real ones are like, what? Who are those guys? No, we are the electors. Who are you? And like tr- tried to like sneak in the box and, and, uh, whoop, whoop. and then Mike Pence says the says the the fake electors by accident and then like a king's decree he can't go back and be like oh no oh, they got me oh, that i was trickerooed but that's the, what they create this perception and it wasn't fake electors alternate electors which is the same thing jfk did in 1960 in hawaii the results came out on election night jfk lost 
but it was close. So JFK made alternate electors so that if the results in the end were different, they were ready to go. In Trump's case, if a judge intervened, they wanted to make it so Trump didn't say, uh, so the judge didn't say, oh yeah, sure enough, look, uh, Trump did win the state, but he doesn't have electors to represent him, so and they're due tomorrow. So it's just got to be Biden in the end. Trump's team just wanted to be ready, waiting, right? We're here, we're waiting in the wings. Oh, we're going to go. Boom, we're in. That's it. That's all that is. They weren't pretending. <laughs> they weren't deceiving. All right, check this one out. This is my last one. This is uh, Act 22. There's like 50 of these. These, these are all the, the bad things that Donald Trump did. The very, very, very bad things. These were uh, Act 22. On or about the third day of December 2020. Which is weird that they have to say on or about. Because when you send a tweet, it's the day right there. Donald Trump caused to be tweeted from the Twitter account Real Donald Trump. George, you ready for this? Ooh, children warning. If there's any kids nearby, this is some pretty terrible stuff. Georgia hearings now on One America News. Amazing. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. <laughs> what? That's, that's in the indictment. That's Act 22 of the indictment. Trump tweeted... Georgia hearings now on One American News. Amazing. That's the crime. That's part of the crime. Last night, Hillary Clinton was in person with Rachel Maddow. This is a real, this is a real clip that um, the system of democracy at its heart is the idea that the people get to decide how we are governed. And if we if we no longer believe that our will is effectuated through the system, if bad actors tell us falsely that every election is stolen and that the only way an election is uh, trustworthy is if they come out on top of it, um, then something it's, it, it's, it tells you something not just about that person or that moment. It maybe wounds us as a democracy and in a way that is hard to repair. Hillary is sitting right next to her. Hillary's like, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> huh? Wow, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, don't worry, this will go I mean, just as far as all the other ones. But this, uh, we'll, we can chat more about it later, but I thought those are the two most noteworthy things, I thought. The opening the opening sentence, or I guess three. Opening, opening uh, introduction, the false electors claim, and Act 22. <laughs> Oh no, Trump sent a tweet saying the Georgia hearings are on TV. That put him in the pokey. All right, this is Vivek. Right, Vivek yesterday had a statement ready to go. He said, here we go again. Another disastrous Trump indictment. It's downright pathetic that Fulton County publicly posted the indictment on his website even before the grand jury finished convening. Since the four prosecutions against Trump are using novel and untested legal theories, it's fair game for him to do the same in defense. That is, immediately file a motion to dismiss for a, con a constitutional due process violation for publicly issuing an indictment before the grand jury actually signed one. 
He should make a strong argument on those grounds and will send a powerful message to the overexpansive prosecutorial police state. As someone who's running for president against Trump, I'd volunteer to write the amicus brief to the court myself. Prosecutors should not be deciding U.S. presidential elections, and if they're so overzealous that they commit constitutional violations, then the cases should be thrown out and they should be held accountable. Actually, I take it back. He did not have that statement ready to go. That statement is a direct response to what happened that moment. That wasn't a very that wasn't a general statement about an indictment that they could have written weeks ahead of time. That was written in the moment as soon as they published it before they were supposed to. So he didn't have that ready. He was that was on the that was on the fly. Let me pivot away from Trump for a second and talk about the campaign itself and Vivek. I don't know why the other Republicans running against Trump could not figure this one out. Trump obviously was going to be the front runner. Trump is beloved. And if not for him, because people like him, it's the analysis that we we used yesterday where he is a grenade that people want to use to destroy something they hate. The deep state, the swamp, DC, the elites, etc. So either people like Trump or they like the idea of Trump. So you cannot run a primary campaign against him. You can't, there's no there's there's no lane, as they say. There's a, there's a certain percentage of never Trumpers. But what what percentage of Republicans are never Trumpers? What do you think? Eight percent. Eight percent are never Trumpers. The Chris Christie and Mike Pence supporters combined it was eight percent, something like that. Why, why are you fighting over the scraps? That you're going to run your whole campaign fighting over the anti-Trump scraps? How could you miss it that badly? The only way, as I see it, please correct me where I'm wrong, the only way to beat Trump is to support Trump. Ride his coattails for as long as you possibly can. Remember, Trump's en- entire strategy for life is tit for tat. So if you never say anything bad about him, he'll never say anything bad about you. As we explained with Gavin Newsom, he said, he said, I can't. He was in an interview. He said, I can't say anything bad about Gavin Newsom because Gavin Newsom was nice to him. So if Gavin Newsom's nice to Trump, Trump said, I can't say anything bad about him. That's what he said. Now, as soon as you do say something bad about Trump, he will crush you. He will destroy you. He will salt the earth behind you. So you can never say anything bad about him. You just can't. You can't do it. So ride the coattails. Do what Vivek did and come to his defense. And then once you ride the coattails all the way to the end, as long as you possibly can, then maybe you have a chance of people coming to their own conclusion at the end and saying, you know what? I actually like that guy better than Trump. That's the only play. And the worst case out of that is you get a vice president nod or some other cabinet. And even Ron could have done this. Even Ron DeSantis could have done it. He had every chance because he and Don, they, at the point, they had nice things to say about each other. So Ron could have kept praising Trump. And then Trump would have said nice things about DeSantis, and DeSantis could have rode the coattails for as long as possible. And then people at the end would have been like, you know what, I actually think DeSantis would be better now. You cannot run to the right of Trump. You cannot run anti-Trump. You can't talk bad about Trump. You just can't do it. Because all these people attacked Trump, they alienated Trump supporters, and unleashed the whirlwind 
against them from Trump himself. And I think it's too late for any of them to turn it around. I don't think any of them can can play nice now. Vivek's the only one who hasn't screwed it up. He's the only one that's on the Trump train, and he'll ride it all the way to the end. The very the best DeSantis moment, and I, I like DeSantis a lot. The best DeSantis moment. I don't even think he was running yet. Actually, it's when there was the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and some reporters asked Ron about if he would cooperate with the investigation or if he would send state troopers to remove Trump from Mar-a-Lago to get him to Manhattan or wherever the case was. And Ron firmly, strongly came out. Nope, I, I will have nothing to do with this bad. This, this, you know, weaponized indictment, but a strong defense of Trump and how wrong all this is. And all the Trump supporters were like, yeah, you're one of us. You're what you're our guy, Ron. And Ron could have rode that all the way until, until he couldn't anymore, right? Take the lowest seat at the table until you're not able to anymore. So he could have rode that all the way to the end and then pivot at the last minute, see if he could pivot off and get a win. And he didn't do it. Instead, they all came out hard against Trump. And uh, how's it going? Not well <laughs> for any of them. Speaking of Vivek, let's play this clip here. This is uh, making the rounds. So he's in Iowa. I reckon this is Iowa. And uh, a pansexual comes up to him. <laughs> so Vivek's walking down the street in Iowa and a pansexual comes up to him. Like what a bizarre sentence I never thought I'd say. You know, Wayne Brady is a pansexual. We found that out last week. I know you were wondering. Now you know. So a pansexual, don't worry about it. <laughs> if you're asking, just go with it. Comes up to Vivek. And uh, these are the moments that, uh, that, that make or break a campaign, quite frankly. These are the Joe the Plumber moments. So enjoy. I was just wondering, um, what were your opinions on the LGBTQ well, I don't think it's one community. Really? Yeah. I mean, how could it be? You just mash together an alphabet soup. Trans is fundamentally in tension with gay, if you ask me. But what's your opinion? I'm personally a pansexual, so I was okay. just wondering what your views on same-sex couples were. Okay, let's stop here real quick. This is great. Brilliant move from Vivek right there saying, what do you think? It's right here. Trans is fundamentally in tension with gay, if you ask me. But what's your opinion? There you go. What's your opinion? If you are in a debate with someone, first of all, if you're in a debate with someone, they don't care what you say. They don't care what you think. No one does. So if you're in a debate with someone, the best thing to do is to ask them their opinion. And 95% of the time, they don't know. They really don't know. 95% of the time, they don't know what their opinion even is. They'll say things, of course. Got to say things. They'll feel things. But they don't know things. They don't know why they feel this way, and they don't know where they formed this opinion. They have feelings. And people even say, well, I feel like. Don't say that, by the way. There's like, a, there's like a false humility to it, but it's also a tell of, of that you're 
you're not really being thoughtful. You're feeling. I feel like now she went another route, but also proof that she doesn't actually have any thought out opinions on this. She went with her identity. He says, well, what's your opinion? Well, I'm a pansexual. Okay, that's not what the question was. The question wasn't, what do you identify as? The question was, what do you think? And she responded with an I am statement. What do you think about this? Well, I am this. Okay, but what do you think? Of, what do you think? <laughs> On the left, what you think and what you identify as are the same thing. But they're not, right? So all she has to say is, well, I'm a pansexual. And then you're supposed to like assume then a bunch of other stuff. But no, she's not actually stating an opinion. So it's brilliant for Vivek to put it back on people. I've actually never heard people in campaigns do that. I've never heard it. I've never heard someone running for office ask, well, what do you think about it? And no one's prepared for it. And that's why she can't, she waited. Uh, well, I'm pansexual. <laughs> that's not a response at all. All right, here's the rest. I'm personally a pansexual, so I was okay. just wondering what your views on same-sex couples were. I don't have a negative view of same-sex couples, but I do have a negative view of a tyranny of the minority. So, so I think that in the name of protecting against a tyranny of the majority, and there are times in this country's history where we have had a tyranny of the majority, we have now, in the name of protecting against tyranny of the majority, created a new tyranny of the minority. And I think that that's wrong. I don't think that somebody who's religious should be forced to officiate a wedding that they disagree with. I don't think somebody who is a woman who's worked really hard for her achievements should be forced to compete against a biological man in a swim competition. I don't think that somebody who's a woman that respects her bodily autonomy and dignity should be forced to change clothes in a locker room with a man. That's not freedom, that's oppression. And so I believe that we live in a country where free adults should be free to dress how they want, behave how they want, and that's fine. But you don't oppress, you don't become oppressive by foisting that on others. And that especially includes kids, because kids aren't the same as adults. And so I think adults are free to make whatever choices they want. But do not foist that ideology onto children before children are in a position as adults to make decisions for themselves. And so I think a lot of the frustration in the country, and if I'm being really honest, that I also share, comes from that new culture of oppression where saying those things can actually get somebody punished. And in my case, it's part of why it's my responsibility to say them. And I respect that you may have a different opinion, and that's okay. Part of what makes our country great is that you and I can be civil and have this conversation and that we live in a country that still gives us, each of us, the right to speak you know, to a presidential candidate and back and still say that we pledge allegiance to the same nation. So I think that's the beauty of our country, and that's my honest opinion. Awesome. Well, Thanks. thank you very much. I appreciate thank that. Thank you for your civility as well. Yeah. I appreciate Yeah, that's a very sensible answer. <laughs> Don't know how you can disagree with it, actually. It's not the answer I'd give from the pulpit. It's not the answer I'd give as a... Christian making it's not a if I was asked my opinion on the LGBT community here on the radio that's not what I would say but if I was running for president <laughs> and trying to earn votes and make a coalition of people then that seems like a incredibly sensible stance and well articulated right so it's that along with his support of Trump Vivek was the only guy who went to Miami when the first indictment came in he was the only one who went to Miami to support Trump so he actively went out of his way he's doing his whole campaign 
The Trump indictment came down. He said, everyone, get on a plane. We're going to Miami. He's the only one who did that in support of Donald Trump. Put those two things together, and of course, he's now number two in the polls. He won't beat Trump, but he'll turn this into something good for him. Meanwhile, one thing about Joe, and then we'll take a break. We can take your phone calls too. 866-95-PATRIOT. We're going to talk about Vivek. Emma Joe is going to be here at 8 o'clock to talk about the rise of Vivek. Those are my initial thoughts on it. So we'll take your call on that. Uh, we'll take your call on the latest Trump indictment. Are the walls closing in on, on Donald Trump? Have you met anyone who's swayed by this? Are you swayed by this? Are you swayed by the Trump indictment? At this point? The more you, now you know about the previous three, is this fourth one? Like, oh, no, this one's the really... Like, yeah, I don't know if that person exists. 866-95-PAGE. But anyway, we'll take your phone call next. Uh, so Joe. Joe was asked to comment on Hawaii. And he went with maybe the worst response you could get. Uh, maybe that's... Like, the worst response you could give is, who cares? Right, that's like right, but beyond the obvious bad responses, the worst thing he could say is no comment. Now I try to give people the benefit of the doubt with moments like this because they can be awkward, they can be a little weird, things can move fast, people can misunderstand, people can say the wrong things. Like I gave Ron DeSantis a pass when there, there's the, the, the Ron haters got a video of him at some campaign event and he goes up to some guy. And he, Ron goes, what's your name? And he says, I'm Dave. And Ron said, okay. And like, that was right. And like, that's, that's an awkward moment. People were like, oh, Ron DeSantis is an idiot. And, and I was like, oh, like, ah, that's weird. Like, it's a, it's all a weird thing. And it's, if you could do it again, he'd do it differently. Right. That, that, that thing. So I give a ton of grace in moments like that. What happened with Joe yesterday is he's at Delaware. He's in uh, vacation at the beach, and he's about to get into his car. And from a pretty good distance, 20 feet or so, reporter yells out, uh, you know, do you have any comment about the, the rising death toll in Hawaii? And Biden hears it. It's not like he didn't just keep moving. But he stops, hears it, and decides to go with no, no comment. As if he was the one like being investigated on RICO charges in Georgia or something. And then gets in the car, like no comment. As a human being, you don't have a comment? So I understand, I just want to be very clear. Like I understand not going to Hawaii. Some people were critical of Biden for not going to Hawaii. I don't, I don't need my president to go to disaster zones. I don't, I don't need it. Um, they said they didn't want to distract from recovery efforts. Okay, fine. Uh, I don't think he needs to even say anything. I don't think he, I don't think there needs to be a big press conference about it. Maybe if you want, I guess. But I don't. I don't know. But when you're asked, you better have something in your back pocket. Like show show a shred of decency. <laughs> but not, not even so. You don't have to have a statement prepared. Just say something. Say something from the heart about. 100 Americans plus who are, it could be, it could end up being like a thousand people died from this. Like, that's awful. Speak of that. Remember when Trump got off a plane and he was told that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died? Do you remember that moment? 
and and uh, Elton John's Tiny Dancer was for some reason like, mythically playing in the background of the whole thing. It was like this very surreal scene, and he, he was told Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and he he paused. He literally put his hands in front of him. So he's like, and then he went on and said some very nice things about her that you would say about someone who just died and she served a long time and she'll be missed. And then he went out, right? He just, he like nailed the moment. Now, clearly he was thrilled that she died because he got a Supreme court pick out of it. So it's great politically, but he, but he didn't use that, right? He wasn't like, yes, finally, he didn't do that. And he didn't say no comments. (laughs) But Biden, in his moment, goes with no, no comment. So again, just to be very clear, I have a very low bar here, a very low bar when it comes to presidents and natural disasters. I don't want them to go to the disaster site. I don't need them to comment. I don't even need them to send money. I'm not. I'm looking for nothing out of the president when it comes to a natural disaster. But when asked, as a human being, you better have something better than. No comment. It's not like you need to wait for more details to emerge. It's not, it's, not, it's not a criminal investigation where you're like, oh, like, okay. If it was, what's your comment on the, the latest ransacking of Nordstrom's or the latest murder of this person or the police brutality? You'd be like, hey, you know what? No comment. I'm going to let, uh, let more facts emerge. Right. There's no facts to emerge here. It ha- it's a thing. We know you can comment as a human being. Some people think, I'm not here to say this, is not true, I don't know, that things are timed in certain ways for certain reasons, and that this indictment was timed, released to be on the anniversary, of the second anniversary of the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. I don't know. I don't know if it was done that way on purpose or not, but it was. I mean, like it, like it, it was released on the second anniversary of Afghanistan, so it's easy to be distracted away from that day and the story and the lessons that we must learn from that day. There's a new book out by, uh, from Jerry Dunleavy. The book's called Cobble, The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End. We must learn these lessons. Jerry, how are you, man? Thanks for being here. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, so why do we, uh, why do we choose this as the day? Because it was, it was a couple weeks, right? And a lot of things happened over those few weeks, and I think the bombing that, that killed the Americans was like the 29th of August or something like that. So why this day? Yeah. So um, today, August 15th, is the second anniversary of the Taliban taking over Kabul. And so, you know, the book title is Kabul. And so we, we thought that this it's a bit of a grim anniversary, but we thought that it was it was appropriate. And, I mean, obviously, the Taliban taking over Kabul was not just a disastrous end to a, you know, a 20 year war. Um, and as we lay out in the book, a disastrous end to a 20 year war that was ultimately the fault of President Joe Biden because of the way that he did this withdrawal. But it wasn't just that. It was also the, the next two weeks. Um, and we're going to experience the second anniversary of the next two weeks here. Mm. The next two weeks put American service members 
in danger as the situation that they were in, they were at the mercy of the Taliban, relying on the Taliban, um, our enemy for 20 years, uh, to provide security at the airport. And obviously we saw how that ended up with 13 American service members being killed, 200 Afghan civilians being killed, and of course, dozens of American service members being wounded as well. And as we leave at the end of this month, two years ago, we left uh, hundreds, well over a thousand Americans behind enemy lines and tens of thousands of Afghan allies behind as well. And then to make up for that bombing that killed all the Americans, we had that frantic drone strike on who we thought was a terrorist and turned out to be like an aid worker and killed a bunch of kids that were near him, whatever. It's like, geez, guys, that was our last. Exactly, exactly. So the Abbey Gate bombing was on August 26th. That was the bombing that killed 13 Americans. We, the United States, did not strike ISIS-K, this terrorist group, until after the Abbey Gate bombing. We hit an ISIS location in uh, Nangarhar province the day after the Abbey Gate bombing on August 27th. And then, of course, we had that botched airstrike on August 29th that killed um, an Afghan aid worker and a bunch of members of his family. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that we point out in our book is that um, we unearthed Pentagon documents that show that the U.S. was tracking ISIS-K locations in Afghanistan and in Kabul um, before the Abbey Gate bombing. And according to these documents, we, uh, U.S. intelligence knew that ISIS-K was staging at a hotel just west of the Kabul airport um, before the Abbey Gate bombing. And we asked the Taliban to raid that location. And of course, the Taliban never did. Uh, we also unearthed Pentagon documents that indicate that uh, uh, U.S. officers requested an airstrike against an ISIS-K location in Afghanistan before the Abbey Gate bombing, but that that request was denied. And that, of course, we didn't hit ISIS-K until after the bomb went off. So not not very good. And, and we, we think that, you know, if the U.S. had done more, there's a potential that we actually could have dis- disrupted that attack so, that killed 13 Americans. Let me give you a, I, what I imagine would be the biggest complaint against your book, Critique, is, uh, okay, Jerry, very easy to Monday morning quarterback all of this. You on your high horse over here saying, should have done this, should have done that. You, you shared one or two things that one would think would be quite obvious in the moment, right? Should we, should we do, like, how do we take out this ISIS K group staging? Well, let's have the Taliban do it. Well, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. Um, so do you have any other examples of, well, obviously we should have known to do this or not to do that so that we're not just a bunch of Monday morning quarterbackers. Absolutely. So, you know, the the book, we, we make this clear We're our our book is, is not, it's not a pro or anti war book. We, we are, you know, I think people of good faith can can agree and disagree on whether we should have withdrawn and when we should have done that. But the issue here is how we did this. So President Biden's withdrawal order, his go to zero order in April 2021, 
a rapid U.S. withdrawal without doing some very basic things. I mean, between April and May, I mean, between uh, from April, mid-April until July 2nd, we basically got U.S. troop levels down to zero. Um, and we uh, did this uh, without doing very basic things that we needed to, like coming up with a plan about getting Americans out, uh, coming up with a real plan about getting our Afghan allies out, people that we had made promises to, people that had helped U.S. troops in Afghanistan for 20 years. We never came up with a plan about what to do about those Americans who were very soon going to be stranded. We never really attempted to keep the Afghan military on the field and fighting so that they would keep the Taliban at bay while we did the things that we needed to do. We gave up Bagram Air Base, a strategic air base that not only would have helped with this massive evacuation that we had to end up doing, would have helped, would have made sure it was much, much safer. Likely the, the Abigail bombing never would have been able to happen at a place like Bagram. But maintaining Bagram and the air support that Bagram could have helped with also likely would have meant that the Taliban never would have been able to take Kabul to begin with. Again, helping make sure that our U.S. troops would have been in much less danger. Um, so there's, there's a whole series of things um, that, that we could have done. And, of course, President Biden, because he wanted some sort of victory lap, picking September 11th, uh, 2021, the 20th anniversary for the withdrawal date, picking a, you know, some sort of symbolic date and sort of, instead of a strategic date was a terrible disaster because 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan, we know that that April to September time period the time period that he set up the U.S. military withdrawal in, that is the middle of Afghan fighting season. And so as U.S. troops withdrew without any real plan to keep the Afghan military afloat, the Taliban was just so weeping through the country and just the sort of the Taliban red blob sweeping across the country and leaving Americans behind enemy lines. What was the thought for, we're talking to uh, Jerry Dunleavy, author of Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought to the end. What was the, what was the thought process behind giving up Bagram Air Base? They had to think, they had to, they had to have thought that was a good idea for some reason. What was, what were they thinking? It's, it's such a good question. Um, You know, I am currently part of the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee I'm an investigator helping lead the Afghanistan withdrawal investigations. And I just want to note that I'm, you know, I'm, I, I wrote the book and I'm talking about it in my personal capacity, but the committee had the command sergeant major, Jake Smith, who was in charge of, uh, who was tasked with shutting down Bagram in 2021, the summer of 2021. And he testified that in early 2021, a State Department site survey team came from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul to Bagram to do a site survey about doing an evacuation there. And this command sergeant major told them, you are crazy if you tried to do this evacuation through Kabul. That would be dangerous. It would be stupid. Don't do it. Do it through Bagram. And at the time, he had an old evacuation plan that said something like, you know, 60,000, 80,000 people. And he said, there's no way you can evacuate those safely through 
this small airport in Kabul. And the State Department told him, the State Department folks told him, yeah, we we agree Bagram would be much better. And by the way, we think that we'd have to act, evacuate something like 120,000 people. And he's like, well, you really can't do 120,000 people safely through Kabul. But of course, that's what we ended up doing with the devastating effect. This all goes back to President Biden at the end of the day, these decisions being made, because, you know, there's a lot of questions raised about Biden's age and his fitness. And I think oftentimes those are very legitimate questions. But when it came to Afghanistan and the Afghanistan withdrawal and the way it was done, this was being driven from the get go by President Biden. This is what he wanted and the strictures that he put on the number of U.S. troops allowed in Afghanistan, these military leaders, these military generals basically made the decision that because of the troop caps that Biden is putting on us, we cannot do what he's ordering us to do, maintain the U.S. embassy, maintain Kabul airport with this tiny number of troops, and also keep Bagram open. Hmm. Now, should these generals have pushed back more strongly? Absolutely, they should have. Um, you know, so part of that definitely falls at their feet. But at the end of the day, this was Biden's order. This is what they are operating under. And so it's ultimately Biden's fault that we gave up this strategic air base that helped us with fighting terrorism, that helped us keep an eye on, on, on China, um, and that also would have helped us run a safe, a much safer evacuation and likely would have would have saved American lives. What about the day? Let's go, let's fast forward to the day of the, the bombing where the 13 Americans were killed. I, I keep hearing about this sniper. Is that, is that a thing? Well, tell me about the story of the sniper that never was. Absolutely. So Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews also testified before our committee earlier this year. And he testified that Leading up to the bombing, a detailed description of the potential bomber was being uh, passed around um, at Kabul Airport, and he was a he was he was in one of the sniper towers. He was a Marine sniper, and he and his team believed very strongly that they had identified a person who matched the description perfectly. Was asked being deeply suspicious in the crowd. And they tracked this person for a good deal of time. They had multiple other teams come in and get eyes on this guy who also agreed that this was the sniper. Vargas uh, Andrews testified that he asked his commanding officer, Colonel Brad Whited, if he had permission to engage, to take this likely suicide bomber out. And uh, he testified that this colonel said, you don't have permission. And uh, Tyler asked his commanding officer, who can give me permission to engage? And the colonel said, we'll have to check on that for you. Never got back to him. The bomber disappeared into the crowd. The likely bomber disappeared in the crowd and the bomb went off. And so, you know, this, this, is, this, is, some, this is a problem. Obviously, we need to get to the bottom of that. The bigger problem here is 
it's so clear when you talk to these Marines who are on the ground and these other service members who are on the ground. Rules of engagement were extremely unclear. And the big problem here is that we were at the mercy of the Taliban. This is the situation that President Biden put these service members in, an absolutely impossible situation where the entire country of Afghanistan and all of Kabul outside of this tiny airport is completely controlled by the enemy. And we are relying on the Taliban and specifically the Haqqanis, the Haqqani network Taliban, who are very close allies of Al Qaeda and love to do suicide bombings themselves. We are relying on these people to provide security at the airport. And they are beating Americans and turning Americans away from the airport. They are beating Afghan civilians and our Afghan allies and killing some of them right in front of our Marines. And our Marines did not have the ability or, uh, and were not allowed to stop them um, when, they were, when they were beating people and killing people in view of these Marines. And so this is just a, a, a really a disgusting situation that our service members were put in. Incredibly dangerous, incredibly chaotic. And, you know, President Biden and everybody on his team need to answer for that. I'm, just, I'm thinking of the, the guilt that these Marines must have, especially that sniper, um, for, being, for, being, for being put there, following orders exactly as they should have, and uh, not being able to do anything more. All right, the hands tied behind their back. That must be horrific to live with their whole lives. Uh, Jerry, we got to run, but let me ask you one last question on that. Because I just want to make sure I give everyone the benefit of the doubt, because war is awful and the whole thing, right? Was... Was there a better way and could better decisions have been made that could have resulted in a better situation? Or was this such a mess and we were, we had to, we had to leave, you know, and there's, there was just no way that we could have left without it going poorly or no, that were, were the American military. There was a way to do this. There were ways to do it, uh, better decisions, better leadership, better execution. And we could have gotten out appropriately. Is that possible or no? The answer is absolutely. This could have been done better every single step of the way. Like I said, you know, does my question make sense? Like, I want to make sure we get the benefit. Does that make sense? Like, I want to make sure that it's not like, oh no, this was good. This had to have been a disaster. There's no way out. It just depends which type of disaster we would have wanted. But Slater, you don't understand because you're not a commander and you're not a general, so you don't know how difficult. Or no, this could have happened properly. Absolutely. Now, like we, you know, in our book, we don't, we, there, there's no illusions here in our, in our book about, you know, what the situation was in Afghanistan. And I, I think that part of the, part of the problem that the Biden administration had is they were not properly understanding how bad the situation was, right? If they had been more realistic about what was going on, the strength of the Taliban, which they downplayed, the intentions of the Taliban, which was always a military conquest of Afghanistan. And yet the Biden administration was still running around saying the Taliban weren't interested in a military solution, which is exactly what they were interested in. The Biden administration misleading about the size and strength of the Afghan military, claiming that it was a 300,000 strong military, which they kept saying throughout the spring and summer. And, you know, the Afghan military was absolutely not that big and was was completely falling apart 
with the U.S. military not doing what needed to be done to keep the Afghans out there and fighting so that the Taliban would be kept at bay. There were all sorts of things that even if you were in favor of a withdrawal, we should have done. We should have had a plan about how to actually get Americans out safely. We should have had a plan about how to get our Afghan allies out. But the problem is the Biden administration, President Joe Biden, decided we're leaving, but didn't do all of the things that you need to do to make sure that if you're going to leave, leave the right way, get Americans out, get Afghan allies out, hold on to Bagram so that you can do this safely and you can keep the Taliban at bay, keep the Afghan military fighting so that the Taliban doesn't just sweep through and then you're at their mercy. There were a lot of things that we could have done along the way here to make sure that if we're going to leave, we leave the right way, we leave with some dignity, we leave safely, and we just didn't do it. Sounds like- and, you know, Americans left behind, Americans killed, our Afghan allies, you know, betrayed. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so the, the, these were all things that President Biden could have done. He just didn't seem to care. Mm. Jerry Dunleavy, author of Kabul. The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End. Jerry, thank you for all your work putting this together. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. Thank you, sir. Please go buy the book. Again, uh, Jerry Dunleavy. The book is called Cobble. I want to come back with our very own John Hayward, who just published a piece on Breitbart.com about the Taliban uh, now, where they are now. Uh, this idea that we could trust the Taliban with the with the withdrawal, like what what in the world, <laughs> what what kind of idea was that? So we'll chat about that next on the anniversary, this two year anniversary of the botched Afghanistan withdrawal. By the way, we will talk more about Trump coming up. Don't worry, we've gotten a couple of phone calls, people saying that uh, this indictment is timed to distract people from the second anniversary. I don't I don't know how much I always believe the timing of things, but either way. We will not be distracted away from this. We will talk about both. I'm American made. I got American parts. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. On tomorrow's show, let me pull up the time here at uh, 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock Eastern. Sorry, I'm Central Time. 8 o'clock Eastern Time. We're going to talk with Congressman Claudia Tenney from New York about the Iran deal, the newest Iran deal, the newest $6 billion for five Americans. She's one of the few Congresswomen people who are like, hmm, I don't think that's a great idea. We'll talk with her coming up tomorrow, 8 o'clock. Hope you can be there. Spread the word. With her and I won't apologize.